0: amen amen you may be seated this morning on this labor day weekend we are going to continue in our study of the gospel of john so if you'll turn there in your bibles to john chapter 7 we covered the first 39 verses last week and we're going to pick it up at verse 40 and actually move into chapter 8 through verse 12 if you need a bible raise your hand pastor john will slip you a bible But again, we'll be in John's Gospel in the New Testament, and we'll begin reading at verse 40 of chapter 7, and we'll travel through into chapter 8, verse 12 this morning. It's been an incredible study, and we got so much more to learn, and what the Lord wants to show us this morning, I know, will be a tremendous blessing. Now, remember, when we opened up chapter 7 of John's Gospel... Chapter 7 to the end of the book deals with the last six months of Jesus' earthly ministry. And it's the Feast of Tabernacles, if you recall last week, uh, at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus going to Jerusalem during that feast. It's one of the three major feasts that the Jews would celebrate in Jerusalem during the calendar year. The Feast of Tabernacles would take place in the fall of the year, so in October, about that time frame. It would be the next Passover, the next April, that when um, Jesus is going to come to Jerusalem and make his triumphal entry, and then at the end of the week, he's going to be crucified. So he's about six months out from going to the cross for your sins and my sins. And at this time, the Feast of Tabernacle, remember what we discussed last week, that it was a commemoration of God's provision for the children of Israel, as they wandered in the wilderness, the people would come to Jerusalem, they would bring their, their booths, their little lean tos their tents, they would sleep under the stars. They would talk to their children about how God provided the, the manna from heaven uh, there in the wilderness, how it would be the water that came from the rock. And of course, we've already seen that Jesus said, that I am the true bread from heaven, And I am the bread of life, and if you believe in me, you'll believe into everlasting life. You'll never be hungry or thirsty again. And of course, he has given the invitation that he is the living water to be received as well for those who are thirsty. So it was in commemoration of God's provision in the wilderness, a celebration of their arrival into the promised land, But then on the last day of the feast, it was also in anticipation of the coming Messiah. And as we talked about last week, that on the last day of the feast of Tabernacle, we read that Jesus would give that invitation to the people. It would be at that time that the priests would make that procession down to the Pool of Siloam like they did in the previous week, but they would come back with their water pots not with water in them but empty and the reason was is because god uh, as they commemorated and remember god was faithful in bringing them into the promised land and then it was anticipation of the coming messiah the priest would quote from uh, isaiah 44 uh, that the lord says i will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground i will pour my spirit on your descendants and it was during that pause that that the people would be praying that Jesus would then stand up and give an invitation to all of them that if anyone thirsts let him come to me and drink and out of his heart will flow torrents of living water speaking of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is the one that gives living water for life everlasting and also in our lives now because remember that Jesus said I came to give you life in life abundantly so for us to to have everlasting life we are to to take of the bread of life believe in him to come to the living waters that he has to offer and also if we really want to have that joy and peace and true blessing in life now we are to come to him because if we go to the world's water or the world's bread. We're just going to hunger and thirst again. So let's continue here as we see Jesus addressing the people of Israel. Now remember that the people are debating about Jesus. They're uh, discussing him, and now we're also going to see that the religious leaders, their anger is going to increase. They're really going to come at Jesus and, and really try to um, find a reason to accuse him. And that's what we're going to see, particularly as we move into chapter 8 and in the following chapters. But let's pray first. Lord, we ask that you would just show us truly um, just the, the wonderful, wonderful words of Jesus here, touching our hearts in a very powerful way, just as, as Peter would say, that you have the words of eternal life. And Lord, I pray that we would be refreshed and renewed. And if anyone here is thirsty and hungry, uh, just as Jesus said, for righteousness as we come to you and to your words that we shall be filled. So help us to be attentive this morning and to be blessed as your word touches our hearts in Jesus' name. So let's pick up our text at verse 40 of John chapter 7. Therefore, many from the crowds, when they heard this saying, said, Truly this is the prophet." Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. And so we've seen in this chapter that as Jesus is teaching the people there at the temple, the people are divided on who he is. Is he the prophet Uh, Moses spoke about there in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Is he the Christ, the anointed one? But some were rejecting him as being Christ because they only knew him to be from Nazareth. They didn't know that he had fulfilled that prophecy that we read about in the Old Testament uh, book of Micah chapter 5 verse 2 that declares, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. They just assumed that he was born in Nazareth in Galilee because that's where he was raised, but we know that he was born and laid in that manger there in that animal enclosure in Bethlehem. So there's this continued debate among the people, and it is true that Jesus brings division and debate among people. Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 10, that I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. I have come to set a man against uh, his father and a daughter against her mother, and a man's enemy will be of his own household, and he who loves mother or father more than me is not worthy of me. Now, in that, as we read the context, Jesus is not saying that we shouldn't love our mother or our father or our siblings, um, that as a father, I shouldn't love my son or my, my, my daughters. That's not what he's saying. Of course, we love our family members. Of course, we love our parents. But what Jesus is talking about there in Matthew chapter 10 was the cost of following him, being submitted to him. He was saying that I will bring division. I will bring division in your family. I will bring division with friends and, and with others that are linked to you in your life. We know that to be true. I think that probably all of us, if not most of us, have found that to be true in our own lives. So we shouldn't be shocked when we feel like people are isolating us. Or division comes uh, because of your stand as a believer for Jesus Christ. And we know that, as the Bible declares to us, and as we experience as we are Christians, that the world isn't going to be our friend when we're a believer, when we are living for the Lord, and as we are serving the Lord. uh, The world isn't going to come along and pat us on the back because we're Christians. The world's going to come against us, and it's inevitable. There's going to be division, and there are going to be those who will come against us. And in verse 44, as Jesus continues speaking, or as we read here, Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. And then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why have you not brought him? And the officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. Uh, The religious leaders that are really coming against Jesus, uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, uh, the chief priests, uh, they hated Jesus. And one of the reasons that they hated Jesus is because they're beginning to lose their religious authority over the people who were turning to Jesus. Now, they ruled over the people with a heavy hand. They didn't have a heart for the people, and we're going to see that as we continue on. They're going to show contempt towards the people that they're supposed to be ministering to and serving, and they didn't have that servant's heart. They didn't have compassion towards the people. They only wanted to rule over the people with a very heavy hand. They, they would become a burden to the people uh, in Israel. So they're beginning to, to see that Jesus... As he is showing compassion, as he is showing, um, you know, um, that he is one that cares for the people and he's uh, one that is sharing with them about the goodness and the, the mercy and the grace of, of their God, they're beginning to turn to Jesus. And of course, he comes with true authority, the, the authority of the Father. The religious leaders came with a self-imposed authority. So here with the religious leaders realizing that, that this one, there are people that are believing in him, they felt like they needed to send the temple officers and soldiers to go and arrest him, go get him. But they come back and they don't have Jesus. And the reason was, it wasn't that they were incompetent, but the reason they didn't bring Jesus back, those temple soldiers, is because they were taken in by the words of Jesus. Jesus. He did speak with such authority. He spoke with such grace and such truth. We know that as they come back and they say that never before a man speaks like this man speaks, what they were saying, those temple soldiers to the religious leaders, is that this isn't just a mere man, that this man is from God. And they were captivated by the words that he was speaking we know that in John chapter one, you might recall that John in in opening up this gospel concerning Jesus wrote that he's full of grace and truth. Now in Mark's gospel, it tells us that the, the common people heard him gladly. And now we see that these officers come back and they say, Never before has a man spoke like this man speaks. And can you picture those religious leaders, the, the countenance of their face when they come back and, and say, we don't have him. He captivated our hearts. He touched our heart in a very deep way. Uh, instead of arresting him, he arrested us. And you can picture, you know, their faces are red and a snarl on their face and anger and, and their voices. Where is he and why didn't you bring him? Why didn't you arrest him like we said? We never heard anyone speak as He does. Such grace as they would hear Him stand up and say, If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. And out of His belly will flow torrents of living water. Such grace and, and such authority that I know the Father and the Father and I are one. I do no works apart from the Father. The Father has sent Me. And such truth and the truth that... that would pierce our hearts and we know that he is the one that has the words of eternal life that he is the way the truth and the life and isn't it amazing how when we read the scriptures that is so true what the book of hebrews declares to you and to me in chapter 4 that the word of god is alive and powerful sharper than any two-edged sword It touches our hearts. It it pierces our very hearts. And the Word of God is alive, and the words of Jesus are alive, and they are truly the words of eternal life. So they come back. Never before has a man spoke like this man speaks. In verse 47, then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is a curse. Again, the religious leaders... Their anger and their hatred is growing against Jesus. And they're lashing out at these soldiers. They're beginning to lash out at the people. And you can see very clearly that they don't have a heart for the people that they're supposed to be serving and ministering to. And listen, in any of us that minister, whenever we begin lashing out at the people that we're supposed to be ministering to, that's when we realize and that's when we can know that we're losing our heart of ministry. That's when we know that, that we don't have that, that true servant's heart, that minister's heart that we are to have. And they don't have it here. They begin to get their digs in. They're, they're coming against anyone who is looking to Jesus. And, um, you know, are you also deceived? Is that why you didn't arrest him? The crowd's listening to him. They don't have the decree degrees and the knowledge that we have. Is that why you're all being tricked by the Galilean? So they're putting others down. They're, they're trying to elevate themselves. And verse 50, Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? Now, you know Nicodemus. We know how he came to Jesus at night, and he came to Jesus. Jesus would say to Nicodemus, the master teacher of Israel, that if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And you recall how Nicodemus was, you know, struggling and wrestling with that, and how can this be, and how can this happen? And Jesus is dialoguing with them. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't be surprised, Nicodemus, that I say to you that you must be born again. And Nicodemus, they're coming in the nighttime, but it was dark in his heart. He's confused. He's wondering. I think deep down he knew that there was more than just being religious, that he fell short uh, of the law, that he fell short of being righteous. And so it's dark at this time. Now he's had some time to think about what Jesus said. Months have passed, and here we see that Nicodemus tries to stick up for Jesus. Hey, We're not to judge a man before he's heard. And I don't think that so much that it's dark in his heart now, but I think that the light is beginning to penetrate. It's beginning to come into his heart. It's kind of like twilight, if you would. And in John chapter 19, we're going to see that Nicodemus is going to have the light that is in his heart, the light of Jesus Christ. The reason is because he sees it and he understands it. And when does Nicodemus become a believer, as we are told in John 19 that he is? He became a believer when he saw Jesus on that cross. You see, Nicodemus, he would remember the words of Jesus there in John chapter 3, that Nicodemus, that just as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness so must the Son of Man be lifted up. In other words, I'm going to go to the cross. And whoever believes in me shall never perish but have everlasting life. And in John chapter 19, Nicodemus, along with Joseph of Arimathea, another religious leader, they went to Pilate and they asked for the body of Jesus. They asked to to take him and, and to release his body. So Nicodemus brought the costly burial spices. Joseph of Arimathea had a tomb that had never been used to lay the body of Jesus in. And Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea go on record as saying, we don't care what happens to us. If we lose our position in our you know, religious status in the country. We don't care if you know, we get persecuted. We don't care what others think of us. We are going to ask for the body of Jesus because we are believers now. And when did it come together for Nicodemus? I think that perhaps that when he saw Jesus lifted up on the cross, there are those that will come to us and they will debate about jesus they will get into uh, or try to get into these deep theological or philosophical discussions about jesus and who he was and what he did and and i'm not sure about this and this is what i think here's what you and i are to do eventually always bring the conversation back to the cross What Jesus Christ did on the cross and dying for your sins, my sins, he paid the price for you. He died for the sins of humanity, for your sins personally, because of his love for you. Jesus later on in John, as I've mentioned this to you, would say that if I be lifted up, that is on the cross, I will draw all men to myself. So it's really important as people are discussing Jesus or debating Jesus, point people to the cross at Calvary that's where they're going to begin to see the light drawn upon their hearts so when people are in that discussion make sure that you let them see clearly that he was lifted up for them that he died for them personally and he rose from the grave and he's alive and so what are you going to do with that what are you going to do with jesus who died for you so nicodemus here at this time perhaps still wondering, the the light is beginning to touch his heart. He eventually is going to see it. So Nicodemus says, don't judge unless you hear him. Give him a break. And they answer Nicodemus in verse 52 and, and, and said to him, are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Now remember, Nicodemus was called by Jesus the master teacher of Israel. And all of a sudden, these other religious leaders are insulting him, getting in their digs, you know? Are are you also from Galilee? Are are you also ignorant is what they were saying? In other words, again, always these these religious leaders putting people down, trying to elevate themselves on how smart they were, how powerful they were, how much authority they had. Uh, No one has ever come a, a prophet out of Galilee. But the thing is, they were wrong. And I think that probably Nicodemus knew that they are wrong. He knew the scriptures, Second Kings chapter 14, that we know that it is Jonah that came from a town near Nazareth, from Gath-Hefer. And we know that Jonah was a prophet. Plus, Jesus was not birthed in Galilee, but in Judea and Bethlehem, and then he would move to Nazareth when he was a child. So the religious leaders here are doubly wrong is what they are. Again, when people come to you and to me and they begin to say, well, you know, Jesus, this isn't true, you know, about Jesus or this is wrong or this is a contradiction about the Bible, they'll come along and try to get you to doubt. They'll try to get you to wonder, um, try to dismiss things that are in the Bible. Make sure that you know the Scriptures, nicodemus was one that he knew the scriptures he knew what was in the scriptures these guys are saying well no prophet ever came out of of galilee well that's wrong that's wrong that's not what the scripture says and you and i need to search the scriptures when people come along and and they say this isn't true or this is a contradiction and all of this it's kind of like the bereans in acts chapter 17 When Paul, on that second missionary journey, when he came to Berea, that he would preach that Jesus is the Christ to the Bereans. And what did they do? It says that they searched the Scriptures to see if these things be so. And particularly today, Christians, that we need to be ones that are studying the Scriptures, ready to give a defense, rightly dividing the word of truth, because there are those skeptics that are out there, and there are many of them out there, they're going to come along and try to get your kids, you know, yourself, other family members, those that you know in life to doubt the truth of what the Word of God has to say. And they'll say things that are you know, not in the Scriptures, or this is what I heard, or they'll try to you know, snow you with something um, that, that they come up with. Be one that is a student of the Scriptures, and you'll find the answers And that's what the Bereans did. And that's what you and I are to do. And so everyone went to his own house. And now as we move into chapter 8, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Kind of interesting, isn't it? The feast is over. People are taking down their little tabernacles, their little tents, and rolling up their bedrolls. And thousands of people are now going home back to their own homes. But Jesus didn't. And it's interesting because here is the creator of the world the creator of the whole universe, he didn't even have a home. He would say that foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So Jesus, what does he do? He goes to the Mount of Olives. Now the Mount of Olives was just east of the temple, that mount that uh, is there, and oftentimes it's recorded in the gospel narratives that Jesus would go to the Mount of Olives, and there he would spend time teaching his disciples at certain times, uh, spending time with them, and also praying to the Father. It's never really recorded that he spent the night in Jerusalem. And so he goes to the Mount of Olives at this time, and verse 2, Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. So Jesus, early in the morning, came to the temple to teach once again. And throughout the Scriptures, I just want to remind us that I see that the early morning is a very special time for those who are used of God, those who were really seeking the Lord. We see it in the lives of, for example, Abraham, for Moses, for Joshua, for David, and others. We know that in the New Testament, it was the women at the tomb on that first Easter morning that they, they discovered the reality of the resurrection when... Very early in the morning is when they did. You look at the apostles in Acts chapter 5, uh, that they were praying early in the morning. Over and over again in the scriptures, and even Jesus, he puts the uh, and sets the example for us in the gospels. They, early in the morning, he would be praying to his father. Here in the morning, he's teaching the people. And The early morning hours are a special time to receive the teaching of the Lord. It isn't that you can't learn at other times. It isn't that you can't receive at other times. Of course you can. But I just want to emphasize, and I can't emphasize it enough, of the importance and the priority of developing and maintaining an early morning devotion time. It is so critical, Christian. If you're going to stay close to the Lord and stay healthy spiritually, if you're going to grow in the Lord, then you need to be one that you are starting your day whenever that might be. Because some of you might work at night or swing shifts and things like that. But begin your day by spending time with the Lord, reading the scriptures, giving your heart to the Lord, praying to the Lord. And you will find that your faith is going to grow and you'll find that your faith is going to be strengthened as you do that. So Jesus comes to the temple and the next day after the feast was over, he sat down and he taught the people early in the morning. And as he is teaching, all of a sudden there's this commotion that's going on. A commotion that's going on and is getting closer to him and closer to where he's teaching the people and all of a sudden he looks up and what does he see? Well, verse 3, then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? And they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. So quite an interruption, isn't it? Early here in the morning, teaching, and all of a sudden, the religious leaders, they come and and there's this commotion going on, and they brought this woman, brought to Jesus, right before Jesus. And I just have a feeling that they didn't treat her very well. They, They threw her right down in front of Jesus in the midst of the people that he was teaching. The night before, as we read, that here everyone went to their own home where they were sleeping. Jesus was up on the Mount of Olives where I suspect that he was probably praying. But here's this other group, the religious leaders. They weren't sleeping. They weren't praying. But what they were doing is they were plotting. They were peeking. They were watching this woman. They catch her in the act of adultery. And can you imagine this woman, the the shame of being brought before Jesus and the people that are there, being brought by these religious leaders, throwing her down, Uh, the worry and the wonder that she has here, what's going to happen, you know, the hatred of the Pharisees and their anger. You know, we can really begin to see how much anger and, and how much hatred they had for Jesus and contempt that they had towards the people. Hey, teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. Moses states that she should be stoned. What do you say? Now, in Leviticus chapter 20, we read if anyone was caught in the act of adultery, they must die. If you read Deuteronomy chapter 22... And I believe in verse 22, it says that both the man and the woman is to be stoned. So that was what the law had stated. Now the Mishnah, which was the Jewish interpretation of the Old Testament books and law, laid down various regulations in making sure that there was no injustice Uh, the Mishnah not only said that there had to be witnesses, and we know that that's what Deuteronomy says, that Deuteronomy says that through two and three witnesses, every word shall be established. So the Mishnah went on to explain that, that in this case of adultery, that there had to be witnesses, and if their stories had any discrepancy, you know, that they didn't match up, then the accused would be released they had to match perfectly Um, they had to to agree and so it was very very difficult for somebody to actually be stoned for adultery matter of fact we really don't see it in the old testament Uh, we know that david committed adultery and he wasn't stoned for adultery so here was the rules and regulations from the Mishnah, uh, the book of Moses that said that she is to be stoned. Uh, you have these witnesses. They say that she's caught in the very act of adultery. But here's the thing to remember. They don't care about justice. They don't care about godly obedience. These religious leaders only want to get at Jesus. And what I think, and what a, a lot of scholars believe, is that these Pharisees, these religious leaders, it seems like they orchestrated this whole event to bring this situation that they might trap Jesus, trying to to trap him, to to trick him, to get at him. And the reason that that is we can come to that conclusion that it is very probable that this is a setup is because if she was caught in the very act of adultery, the question is, where's the man? Why didn't they bring the man? I mean, this was not a solo act. So where is he? He is to be dealt with. So I believe that very much this could have been very probable a setup. These religious leaders are not interested in justice. They just want to get at Jesus. They want to confront him. Here are all these guys. they have rocks in hand. They caught this, this woman in the very act of adultery. We caught her red-handed. We know that Moses wrote in the law that she should be stoned. But what do you say? They must have thought those religious leaders, we got him. We got him trapped. Because if Jesus said no, ignore the law of Moses, then the religious leaders had a case that he's a false prophet, that he doesn't care about the law. He's not interested in, in, you know, godly obedience at all. But if Jesus said, okay, you know, let's start stoning. Go ahead and start throwing the rocks. Then one of the things that it would do is cause confusion among the people. The people that were thinking that here is a man with such compassion, They would hear him say, Come to me and drink of the living waters. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, he said earlier in his ministry. He ate with tax collectors and with sinners. He was called a friend of sinners. Not that he condoned sin, but he said that I've come to save sinners. What if he would have said, You adulterer, let's do it, and picked up a rock himself. It would cause such controversy and such confusion. We got him now, they must have thought. What do you say? What is it that you say that we're to do? In verse 6, and this is what's amazing, but Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So Jesus was sitting when he was teaching as we read in the text. Now he stoops down, he's writing on the ground with his finger as though he didn't hear them. Now why is he doing that? Is he doing it to stall? Just kind of stalling, thinking, okay, what am I going to do? What am I going to do in this situation? You know? Or is he being rude to them? I don't think he's stalling. I don't think he's wondering. I don't think that he's being rude at all. I think that he was giving them a break. It's almost as though Jesus was saying, I'm going to patiently and very graciously give you the opportunity for you guys to go on your way. And so I never heard you. Because Jesus knew what was in their hearts. He knew if this was a setup. And I'm going to give you a break, but verse 7, so they continued asking him. In other words, they were being very persistent. They continued to press the point. What do you do? What is it that you say Come on, answer us. And they kept doing that. And I imagine those religious leaders turning to the people and saying, You know, what should he do? What's the answer here? Being very persistent, you know, continuing to press the point. And so Jesus, he himself uh, raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down on the ground uh, and wrote on the ground. Now, Some have suggested that what Jesus was saying was, he who is without the same sort of sin casts the first stone. Now, what was it that Jesus wrote on the ground? We don't know. That's a great mystery. There's all kinds of speculation of perhaps what he wrote on the ground, but we don't know for sure. The Greek word for wrote here is the Greek word grapho, which means to write, to describe. So some have suggested, and that's all we can do is suggest, is that Jesus was writing perhaps the names of the Pharisees and the sins that they committed, Uh, the women perhaps that they lusted in their own hearts, or even the adultery that they committed themselves. But what Jesus said hit them like a bolt of lightning. I mean, it really hit them hard. In my opinion, that's why we're going to see the reaction that they're going to take here in just a few verses. I think what Jesus wrote on the ground had a lot to do with that. So we don't know what it is that he wrote. I wonder about it. When we get to heaven, that's one of the questions that I'm going to ask. What was it that he wrote on the ground there? The day before he talked about, if any of you thirst, come to me and drink of me. He's proclaimed himself to be the living waters. And I don't know if he wrote maybe their sins or they committed or their names or whatever it may be. But he stands up and he says, he who is without sin cast the first rock. And I just wonder if he's kind of pointing down at the ground. You without sin cast the first rock. might want to read that. little message for you. I do believe that this was a fulfillment of Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13. Write it down and look it up. But Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. A fulfillment of Jeremiah 17, 13. The day before, he said, come to me and drink, and you'll have living water. The next day, he's writing in the earth, the dust, to those who had forsaken the Lord. And so in verse 9, we read, then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. So these guys are convicted. Again, I think it had a lot to do with what he wrote on the ground. The oldest drop their rocks and leave. The oldest go first. Why? Again, some have suggested that because they had more sin. One of the things that happens when we get older is, you know, the mature ones, the older ones, are the least likely to throw rocks. When we get older, we realize that we haven't lived a perfect life. We realize that we've sinned. We realize that we've fallen short and we've made mistakes sometimes it's the kids that like to throw the rocks the bible says the weaker christians but the more mature christian they dropped their rocks the older went first the whisper stayed around longer but eventually would leave and jesus was left alone with the woman the crowd was still there you know at a little distance where he had been teaching there before the Pharisees showed up, but no one is pressing him any longer. In verse 10, when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are th- those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and uh, sin no more. Deuteronomy, again, chapter 19, verse 15 You need two witnesses to condemn a person, and now there's none. Where are your accusers? Is anyone left to condemn you? No, she says. No, Lord. And she looked into the eyes of God himself. And he said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. I want to leave you with a couple thoughts, but don't pack it up quite yet, okay? Number one, the law condemns us as sinners. The law condemns us as sinners. It is true that the Pharisees were right in saying Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 22, what Moses had written, declared that she is to be stoned. Matter of fact, we know that we are guilty of sin, all of us. And if you are living your life trying to keep the law, your goodness, your works, good luck. The law kills. And we know that Paul, he would write in the book of Galatians that there's a curse that comes with the law. And the reason that there's a curse that comes with the law is because all of us have broken the law. And the reason for the law was to be a schoolmaster, a tutor, Galatians chapter 3, to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith in Christ Jesus. Listen, if any of us are trying to live by the law or your religiousness, you're going to get a stone eventually. Second of all, that leads us to this, that the law condemns us as sinners, but remember that we're all sinners. All of us have sinned. And we see that these who are sinners, how they are treating this woman, like they're all righteous and they're all, you know, Um, elevated and, and favored by God more than anybody else. Listen, we're all sinners. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't point out sin, we don't bring correction, we don't condone sin, not at all. But to remember that we are all sinners, and that's why Paul would write in the book of Galatians that if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, in a spirit of meekness, not meanness. And that's what these guys were doing, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. So we're all sinners, and we need to remember that. We need to remember that we fall short as well. And then the third and most important thing is Jesus, the light of the world, he died for us sinners. He died for you and for me. So the law treats sinners severely, condemning us. We know that all of us are under the curse because we are sinners. But Jesus came and died for us, for sinners. The compassion, the love. And the only one who had a right to throw a rock didn't. He didn't throw a rock. Now, he did call her to repentance. He said, go and sin no more. And we know that the Lord says, as many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten We know that all judgment has been given to the Lord. He said, all judgment is given to me by my Father. We've already seen that in chapter 5. But remember this, for you and for me, that Jesus took the judgment that you and I deserve, and he took it upon himself on Calvary. And now Romans chapter 8, verse 1 declares, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus went to the cross for you and for me. He went for this woman, and he went for you, and he went for me that we might live that we may not die under the penalty of the law and that's the good news that we can bring to others that are in this world others that that are found in their nakedness and in their sin and in their shame that listen that we're all sinners and that's why jesus came and died for us and he died for you specifically for your sins that you might be forgiven and have eternal life as you come to the one who is offering you living water, the bread of life, the one who died for you specifically. Take him to the cross. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself, that whoever believes in me shall never perish, but have everlasting life, and that we might have the only hope that there is, and that is through Jesus. So, Father, we thank you. As Jesus would speak to them and say that I am the light of the world, we are so thankful that the light of the world, Jesus, came and died for us, for us sinners who are hopeless and lost. And Father, we thank you for the gospel that is shown here in in a very illustrated um, and practical, powerful way, that this woman, caught in a very act of adultery, a sinner, that Jesus would look at her and she would cry out to him, Lord, and say, I don't condemn you either. And we who are believers in this room on this Labor Day weekend, that we can rejoice because Jesus Christ died for our sins. I pray that that would not lose its impact in our lives. And Lord, that just as Jesus was one, who looked at the crowds with compassion, showed his love and proved his love, that we would show that love to others as well. And Father, I do pray, if there's anyone here this morning that is listening to this message, that you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. You know what the Word of God declares. He is the light of the world. And Jesus came and died for you because all of us are under that curse of the law. The law doesn't make us righteous. The law declares that we're guilty. And the wages of sin is death. And so Jesus calls us into repentance to turn to Him, to surrender your life to Him and believe that He died for your sins, that He is the Son of God, the only one, who made provision for forgiveness. And he was put into a grave, and he conquered sin and death. He rose from the grave three days later, and he's alive. Have you surrendered your heart to him? Is he knocking on the door of your heart? Will you open up your heart and allow him to sit on the throne of your heart and ask him into your life as your personal Lord and Savior? Today is the day of salvation. Because without Jesus, there is condemnation. There is judgment that will come if you reject him. Don't let this moment pass from you. If this means anything to anyone that is here this morning, the gospel is this, that he's the only one that can save you. You confess that you're a sinner in need of him and surrender your life to him. You can pray right where you're at and really mean it in your heart sincerely that jesus i come to you a sinner i'm as guilty as this woman in this story i have broken your law i have broken your commandments forgive me of my sins i believe that you died on calvary's cross for my sins forgive me you rose from the grave and you're alive Be my personal Lord and Savior and sit on the throne of my heart. My life is now not its own. I belong to you, Jesus. I'm surrendered to you. And help me to live for you all the days of my life. And if anyone prayed that prayer this morning, as we conclude the service, I want you to come up and pray with Pastor John. I want to tell of the decision that you made. And then we got something to give to you to help you in your walk with the Lord. And Father, I pray that all of us, that we would just marvel that you are the one that has provided everything that we need. Bless everyone here as we go our way. Lord, help us to rejoice in you. And as the light of the world is in us, may that light be shined on others and manifested to others that are in the darkness. Lord, thank you for this time we've had together. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand?